0: Hi, this is uh, William Selby, and I'm with the Office of the Secretary of Defense Public Affairs. And thank you for joining today's DoD Live Bloggers Roundtable. Uh, today we have on the line Lieutenant Colonel Michael, Michael Baker. Uh, he's going to be discuss- uh, He is the military deputy for CERtics Command, Power, and Integration Directorate, the Army Science and Technology Center for research into advanced mission command applications and computing platforms and he'll be discussing CERDEC's direction for developing mission command capabilities under its Data to Decisions Initiative. He'll discuss key programs and how the center is seeking advanced modeling and simulation capabilities to understand how to leverage mobile computing resources at the company level. Uh, To the bloggers online, you've both been on the the bloggers roundtable before, so you know the rules. Uh, Please keep your questions short and succinct. If you are not asking a question, we please ask that you keep your phone on mute and please make sure to state your name and organization before your question. Um, And with that, Lieutenant Colonel Baker, this is William Selby again. Uh, If you have an opening statement, the floor is yours, sir.
1: Okay, thanks, William. I really appreciate that. So I guess I'll kind of reintroduce myself. So again, Lieutenant Colonel Mike Baker, I work for John Willison, who's the uh, Director of Command Power Integration Directorate here at CERDEC. Command power and integration has, in addition to uh, mission command roles, so which which includes what happens at, in command posts and, and uh, how we do command control and situational awareness on the battlefield. We also have uh, power and energy operational energy, which which is a huge number of, of problems within there, which also tie back to command posts. And we also have uh, position navigation and timing, which is kind of critical piece for situational awareness and uh, we have a large prototyping facility. So just to kind of give you a scope of, of my organization. Um, and then, so today we're kind of focused on talking about uh, really mission command, and, and in some ways it comes down to situation awareness, but really I guess decision making is the, is the focus, and, and uh, because we wanted to talk about modeling and simulation, um, what I wanted to, so w- what I want to kind of go over to start with is, is what the problem, the way I understand the problem that we're trying to address and how modeling and simulation ties into that problem and then I'll kind of at the end talk briefly about where we are today and where we're going. So a lot of stuff uh, that we want to achieve with modeling and simulation is is part of future work um, that's enabled by technology that we expect to be more and more available at the front basically at the tactical edge. So so in that that Really, that capability really comes down to computing power at the tactical edge that you you know today you're familiar, used to having in a in a more um, I guess uh, safer, stable kind of environment. So at brigade and above level, we tend to have, ha- we're used to having computing power, but at, at uh, you know battalion to some extent at, and below battalion in particular, it's it's a lot of computing power is is a relatively new thing. Um, so, really, the the main the problem. So, the main thing that that I am thinking about when I look at you know where modeling and simulation applies, it, it comes down to real time tactical decision making, and in particular, making informed decisions, uh, quality informed decisions uh, that that will tend to be more successful. So, th- there's uh, the notion that you know. Uh, Perfect situation awareness, situation understanding, still doesn't always lead you to. Doesn't always, you know, Im, Im, it directly imply success. It's a probabilistic kind of relationship, and it's very difficult to measure. So that's it, kind of one of the reasons I we, you know, spend a lot of time talking about mission command and how do we improve it, um, and it's it's. Difficult discussion oftentimes because it's hard to measure, you know, what is this decision better than that decision? Um, So again, we're kind of focused at the tactical edge here when we when we are working on command systems, when we're working working on the uh, software and tools that can help, you know, leaders at the small unit level. So we're talking about in squad leaders hands, team leaders hands, but really all the way up to company level is some of the efforts that we currently have going on. Um, and the main thing that, that I wanted to talk about in terms of how we can help leaders make better decisions is, is kind of what, what are the things that they would need in order to make those better informed decisions. And So some examples are, uh, you know, a good quality course of action analysis. So if I had developed a bunch of course of action, how do I choose which one is better and how do I match those course of actions up against the enemy? And course of action and development is another one. So today we do that, you know, we develop course of action as a a planning staff or even in, you know, in real time in response to what's going on on the ground at at lower echelon. So for a squad leader, this is a a quick turnaround decision-making process. And course of action has to be developed even if it's all, you know, done internally and and all the visualization is done internally. so how can, we, how can we assist with that? How can we make course of action development faster? Or how can we uh, prevent, um, say, a squad leader from overlooking a possible a high-quality course of action uh, you know, just because they don't have the visibility of something that, that we want to bring to their attention? And then the next, another one is uh, situational understanding. So how do I, uh, you know, if I, if I do have a bunch of information about the array of my forces, the array of the enemy forces, you know, what does that really mean? and what, what, you know, can I infer the enemy's intent, or am, am I actually executing, if I look at the way of my forces against the enemy, am I executing my intent, you know, as designed? And I think a theme that, that, that ties all of those things together, and, and probably a lot of other examples that I didn't mention here, is, is the ability to predict, make predictions about what's gonna happen, what, is, what are gonna be the impacts of this uh, decision, or what are the risks of taking a certain action what is the enemy trying? What is the enemy trying to achieve? Or looking at where the enemy kind of uh, what I've seen of the enemy so far in this engagement, what what is the, his objective, or what is what is an action the enemy is likely to take that I should be anticipating? And uh, so so really, it comes down to prediction, which I which is critically important to kind of taking situational understanding to the next level. And then that gets me to you know when we start talking about solutions, how do we address this? Um, you know, we again. This is kind of looking towards the future and looking towards the technologies that put a lot, a greater capability for computation in the soldier's hand, at tactical edge, um, and the ability to do some things like modeling and simulation that we wouldn't consider doing today, um, just because you know maybe we don't have the sensors that give us good enough inputs for a model, uh, or we can't turn the product around fast enough uh, for it to be useful. You know, so so basically along those lines, there's there's uh, things that we see that we will be able to do in the future, and so this is kind of the next step I think uh, in where we're going with the work we want to do is is modeling and simulation becomes more and more important. Um, So some kind of some things that I think are that we will need to address, and I already mentioned computing, but you know, given that. Uh, we're in an austere environment and power and those kinds of things are limited. Um, we want to consider, you know, how do we reduce the order of the models in order to improve efficiency? At what, how, how far can you go with that, you know, depending on the situation? Um, how do we improve human-computer interactions? How do we help the, the user to express their intent and, and, you know, so the computer can actually provide useful assistance? Um, and also the notion that this modeling and simulation is a probabilistic problem so we, you know we're not going to ever get an analytical answer to this problem of predicting wh- what you know to expect and what the risks we're facing are so it, it, to me suggests that you want to be able to often run a model many many times in order to get a useful or meaningful uh, result that the, that the commander can use uh, and, I, and I also want to emphasize that you know we are trying it we're deliberately, trying to avoid setting up a situation where the machine is making decisions so we we don't want the machine making decisions what we want is for the machine to support the commander the or the say platoon leader squad leader in making better informed and better decisions um, so there's you know a lot of discussion that could be had there about you know how do we how do we avoid presenting options to commander in a way that the op- that the commander tends to uh, without putting much thought into it, select the best option that the computer presents and, and effectively have the computer deciding where the operation goes next and not the commander. So there's, there's plenty of discussion that could be had there. Um, so, just to kind of talk about some of the things that we have going on now, so, so some of the things that are related to computing at the tactical edge, you know, it's recently with devices like the Net Warrior where we started putting uh, smartphones into the hands of. Uh, soldiers at soldiers of the tactical edge and, and, and um, for instance, we have a program that's oriented on avoiding tactical surprise, which really is a situational awareness problem. How do we, you know, how do we, uh, if we have sensed some kind of information or we have a report from uh, another element or within my squad, how do I make, how do I get that information quickly and clearly, to say a squad leader, so that, that the squad leader, you know, basically improve the improve the situational awareness, but also improve their decision making. So this kind of thing we're doing today, um, but it doesn't so it doesn't rise to the level of prediction. So when we we're not necessarily doing a lot of modeling simulation that can help us uh, make judgment about what might be the next step for the enemy and those kind of things. It's it's but it is a lot of how do we uh, how do we make reports. That soldiers need to need to send up. How do we quickly facilitate that? So you know, if I, I can use a form to quickly fill out a form and, and transmit that digitally, as opposed to uh, having to call and repeat over the over using voice uh, salute report or something to that effect. Um, we're also looking at uh, the computing environment inside, say, a vehicle, uh, or the command post. How do we reduce redundancy? How do we how do we bring the databases into a uh, consolidated state where the, the data is is compatible and easily accessible? You know, for the and, and another thing we're we're spending a lot of time on is is focusing interfaces and, and applications on the commander, whereas historically we've put a lot of emphasis on the warfighting functions, the individual staff, and addressing their problems and their uh, helping them answer the questions they need to help. But how do we improve the picture for the commander? How do we bring all those all those warfighting functions together into one integrated picture uh, and, and make it configurable for the commander? Those are along the lines of things that we have going on today. Um, so I guess with that, I'll uh, stop talking and uh, open it up for any questions.
0: Thank you for that opening statement, sir. Uh, Jared, you were first on the line?
2: Sure, thanks. Uh, so I, I guess one of my fundamental questions is, if if the Army is going to deploy things like WIN-T to, to give you connectivity at, at pretty low echelons, why is, it, why is it even relevant that you can have compute? Um, why do you need to do the compute forward, I guess is my question, rather than having it handled at, at higher headquarters, do all that modeling and simulation up there, and then just push the results uh, down to the squad.
1: Yeah, so so I actually that's a really good question and there's a, a plenty of discussion along those lines in the you know, and for us focusing on the tactical edge we have we have had a lot of uh, well, the best word to use we've had a lot of discussions about the term cloud and its use in the tactical domain and it's my personal feeling that you know if I if I were able to write the official definition of cloud the cloud is something that, um, it's if I'm not connected, then I'm not on the cloud. And if I have to know where and on what kind of hardware the problem I'm running is running, or what you know, what specific hardware where, then it's also not the cloud. So the cloud, kind of by definition, is um, one entity. There can be only really one cloud. Now we can debate about that because there's different classifications of networks and that kind of thing. But the bottom line being that if I if I am connected to the network, I might have access to the cloud, but if I'm disconnected from the network, then I do not have access to the cloud. So I think we can, I kind of want to pro- basically posit that, that that higher echelon computation where you would like to push all the computing, you would like for the uh, soldier at the tactical edge not to carry this high performance computing asset and use the power in order to, to you know, give them the, the tech, basically avoid tactical surprise, help them predict. Um, and you would like to push that up, so whether it's a brigade or higher level, but the the simple truth is that the connectivity can't be guaranteed. So there's, so there's a certain point where I can say, you know, if I, and I'm just, not, not, this isn't doctrine, but you could, as an example, say that a core command post can always expect operate in a connected environment and that's because of the assets that they have or you know the 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 different options that they have to connect back to network that a core can consider itself to be something that's connected to the cloud during operation but when you get down to tactical echelon when you talk about a company level and platoon level and different environments they're operating in and the basically any access Kinds of environments, so non-permissive or, or much, much less permissive environments than what we've kind of been experienced in the in uh, last decade. In other words, you know, talking about a, a fully capable state enemy that we're facing that has that that's able to attack our uh, you know able to attack our uh, non-line of sight communications assets, or able to attack uh, you know jam those kinds of things. Uh, you have to consider the possibility that you will be operating disconnected, and you also have to consider that you'll be doing that at the most important point of your operation. And so I, I, so fundamentally, uh, my, you know, my answer is that that we would really prefer to push that computing up to high higher echelon, but that we don't expect it to always be able to do that. So I understand, you know, you mentioned Win-T. You know, even it, it, they, Win-T can't guarantee communication, uh, you know, and, and I'm, I don't have, couldn't give numbers about what their uh, expected guarantees are, but uh, the, the bottom line is that we're we're not always connected, so we can't rely on always on, on that solution.
2: Okay, so then to follow up real quick, to, to, to do to do the sort of level of computing that you that you think you want to do at the tactical edge. Are, I mean, are, are are today's you know smartphone technologies powerful enough to handle that even in like a, a clustered fashion, or do you need do you need some more heavier duty hardware to do what you think you need to do?
1: So, I guess especially as you mentioned clustering smartphones together, um, so it's something that is being looked at, and I know Army Research Lab is looking at that kind of thing. Not not I can't say they're necessarily looking specifically at smartphones, but but. Um, basically, that's something we're interested in, and it's something that we, so I guess the, the partial answer is yes, that, that we do have the computational power to do a lot of these things, and so some, some of the things that we're doing now um, are kind of what I mentioned earlier, some things that are already transitioning to Net Warrior and Handle Device. It's not necessarily a lot of simulation intensive uh, activities, and I guess the way I, this is just my personal view, that, that as we move forward, That smartphone, which today um, is several orders of magnitude more powerful than a desktop was, say, 20 years ago, um, that smartphone in the not-too-distant future will become comparable to, you know, you've got what they call desktop supercomputing today. So look at all the GPUs, the graphics, graphical processing units that are out there that have equivalent processing power of a supercomputer, again, 20 years ago, that thing can, today be mounted into a vehicle and support troops at the tactical edge and, and you know, solve a lot of these problems. So so, and the answer is yes, there is capability out there today. You know, the smartphone may or may not be limited depending on the kind of simulation you want to run. But as we move forward, I think that it becomes natural. So the smartphone will have some serious, I mean, if I can, if I can expect the smartphone to have the power of a, of a laptop so that, So today's laptop I have on a smartphone, that kind of computational power, and, you know, just say within the next decade, um, then there's some of the simulation tools that exist out there today are running on laptops in a reduced order form, and uh, every reason to expect that those will run on a handheld phone in the next generation or two of of hardware. All
3: right, thanks.
0: Thank you, sir. And uh, Sandra?
3: Hi, uh, thank you very much, uh, Colonel. I, I wanted to maybe um, take a little, bit, a little bit more of a big picture perspective here on this on this connectivity issue that you talk about. Um, the um, you say that at the company and platoon level, uh, you can't assume that you're going to have connectivity or it's not reliable or whatever. I think for for a lot of people, that's hard to comprehend why that's the case, um, because. They, you know they see how technology is so advanced now um, can you explain why that is the case why these connectivity problems and uh, you know how does uh, I mean even the even though technology is really advanced um, there's challenges for the army at the tactical edge
1: sure yeah so so this is actually a, a uh, it's like kind of a fundamental question because you know we spend a lot of money trying to solve communications problems and we've got everybody you know if there's a news story about a failure communications failure test failure or something along those lines everybody pulls out is reading that news story on their cell phone and they're used to being used to driving down the highway at 70 miles an hour and the cell phone works and uh, so it's kind of it's kind of like the army or the military network is always judged against what people have are used to using and communicating, and of course, there's the difference is um, first of all, uh, the, the whether the area that you're operating in is permissive or not. So, of course, in within the United States, you know, we use our we use handheld devices, we got really good data rates and that kind of thing. We're in an extremely permissive environment, and we have an infrastructure that's in place. So we've we've had this I my, me and my boss had this conversation with. Uh, some, some of the leadership down at PO soldier because you know the question comes up and people uh, it is hard to, hard to comprehend if you're used to on a day-to-day basis having really good connectivity it's really not uh, it's not intuitive that you, we could spend a lot of money on really quality hardware and software for the military and you don't have the same kind of connectivity so here you know the mobile the, the mobile communication systems that we are familiar with, has a fixed infrastructure where you, everywhere you go, there's a tower that's already installed there, that that is able to provide you this this uh, service, and your distance from the tower doesn't ever re, it doesn't ever have to be that great. So so the tower has a kind of a cell, which is where the term cell phone comes from. So the tower has a cell of a space that it covers, and those are arranged in a way that give you, you know, continuous coverage. In a combat situation, you you. First of all, I mean, we can we have to, you know, agree that, that the fixed infrastructure may or may not already exist in country, but it's, you can't, you're not gonna expect it to continue to operate or be there by the time you get there. So let's say there is a cell infrastructure there. Um, we might be able to take advantage of that, and that's something we consider also. But um, in, in reality, you expect that to have been taken, uh, kind of, uh, you know, taken out or destroyed in a way that you're unable to use it. And so then we're also moving into an environment uh, so probably a non-permissive environment and we have to take all this infrastructure with us which is one of the reasons we look at a lot of mobile ad hoc networking and these kind of things and then depending on the environment you know line of sight is historically the way we do a lot of communications but you know Afghanistan's a great example of where line of sight is is a really bad solution because every every at the company level, every of uh, operations is a se- separate valley. And if I don't have a retrans on the top of every mountain, then I'm not able to do that. And if I was in a, if I was unable to get that retrans up there, I can't do that. And so this is kind of becomes most critical at the earliest stages of, of a kinetic conflict, where the infrastructure you know has there has not been opportunity to place in the infrastructure, and um, uh, and it's really difficult. So if you're not being permitted just, you know, you don't have freedom of movement, you don't have the, the land resources, you, you don't own every hilltop, or there's some threat against that. And then of course the next layer, there's the layers above this, so we talk about retransit the hilltop, and then we can talk about uh, what happens at, at higher altitudes. Um, and, and most of the communications that, non-line of sight communications that we kind of rely on today are, are satellite-based. Um, but again, when we, when we start facing a state threat, the you know, it's it's you you, you can't expect that uh, you, you you just don't know uh, whether those are going to work or not. Satellite is susceptible to weather and a lot of other uh, limitations, um, and uh, there's there's basically the reliability just can't can't compare to a fixed infrastructure. So we, we do everything we can to to bring it up to that level, but it's just very very difficult in a in a uh, a non-permissive. Environment to be able to basically replicate the kind of fixed infrastructure, the performance that you get from a fixed infrastructure that you have, say here in the uh, state of Maryland, where I am.
3: Mm-hmm. And and just just to understand, you know, what the army is putting a lot of effort and resources to build a um, a, a network and a, a mobile ad hoc network, and uh, from what you've seen. Is, is, are things going in the right direction? Do you see potentially that network actually delivering on these capabilities that would help the small units? So
1: I, I would I would hate to speculate. So so I'm not so for command and integration. That's not mm-hmm. our domain, and I, I really hate to speculate about you know what we're able to achieve on in any specific time frame. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's a good conversation to have, though. You know, where, where, what do we expect to be able to achieve? Um,
3: but, but I mean, are you influencing the requirements process? Are you influencing, or your your office influencing, the acquisition process so that the right capabilities are being. Um, in and,
1: and yes. Yeah, so, so we on. are we are putting significant effort into into and working with the training doctrina, training doctrine sorry training doctrine folks, particularly in uh, maneuver and the mission command, uh, in order to basic. So, so we've got an effort going on right now with command posts, and the, and it's a there's a lot of attention on this right now, improving command posts, uh, simplifying, uh, reducing power constraint. We're reducing power requirements, improving the, the way we provide power to command posts, and we're doing this in conjunction with the with the uh, requirements authors in order to and, and specifically looking at kind of the next generation of requirements. And, and part of it will be exactly along these lines. So it's what what can we do in a disconnected environment, and, and what how are we limited um, when we're when we're not able to push. Say up to the cloud, the proverbial cloud, in order to do heavy computation up there. You know what? What is so? If we understood better what the modeling and simulation, as an example, gives us, then uh, we could kind of judge what is it that we lose by not having any of that capability locally uh, versus uh, basically taking risk when we're disconnected and and operating. You know, say with less computation computational power and those kind of things. So we, we are working with the with the requirements community in order to help better understand the problem in general, which will help us break better requirements for, and again, we're focused on command posts, but that, that you know, the command post requirements uh, influence what the communications requirements are. So those two things, you know, have to go hand in hand.
3: Mm-hmm. Okay. Thank you very much.
0: And Jared, did you have a follow-up?
3: Sure. Um so I, I totally
2: take your earlier point about not wanting to cue a commander so that you know there's only one clear course of action, and, and the machine is effectively making the decisions. But it seems to me the other end of the spectrum is, a, you know, a lieutenant is trying to manually analyze 17 different courses of action in his head while he's taking fire. How do you how do you kind of think about that balance? So
1: there, there are there's a lot of uh there's a lot of work that looks at that, the cognitive problem and, and you know, what's the right amount of, it, it, so, so part of it, I guess, partial answer to that is, is, you know, we definitely understand that uh, there's such a thing as information overload. So there's, there's got to be, you know, a really good understanding of what the individual is capable of kind of assessing at once. Um, and I don't want to try to say, you know, what that solution looks like. So, and I, and I mentioned that we don't we want we don't want to set up an interface where the user just always selects what the computer said is number one. And it might be, you know, so again, speculation, but you know, you probably don't want the computer to tell the user which one is number one. What you want is for the computer to say, if, you, if this action might have these consequences or these advantages, and this action might have these consequences, and the, you can also let the user kind of decide at what level to roll it up depending on how much time is available and, and those kinds of things so it, so when you, you're in your example you have 17 courses of action and you're trying to weigh you know uh, all those against each other in your head so there's a couple of things you one is one is you you might not present all 17 courses of action you might for instance based on this and this is kind of what we're asking the machine to do is to and to analyze those courses of action and say, you know, might be that you could stratify them. You might say, based on you know all the experience that we have in analyzing the course of action, these these one third uh, we don't recommend. These one third seem to be the better ones, and only present those to the to the end user. Now, that's not to say they don't have access to the rest of them, but in terms of just just with what we want to show to start off with, based on the analysis. We do want to make recommendations, but we just don't want to. We don't want to drive the user towards a certain solution. And I, I and I would say there's there's huge amount of work that that needs to be done in this. So again, this is kind of future effort for us. So it's, so it's not like I can uh, explain to you what the answer is or, or how we address that problem. But um, like your your opposite, you know, kind of diapose, your opposed case there is is also an important one. And I think we want to better understand the cognitive piece of that and, and help, help provide the right information and, and, uh, in, in order to drive the right you know, informed decisions, which is going to take a lot of experimentation to really understand that.
2: Sure. and, and, and then to, But to get useful analysis, it, it seems like you've got to have a really rich data set to work off of on, on, on things like, like you said, you know, past enemy movements in, in this particular area. Um, that, I mean, that seems pretty labor-intensive to just get all those inputs into the system. Who, who does that?
1: Well, so that that has to be automated. So that's kind of part of some of the efforts that are going on now. Is is, is uh, you know how do we automate? Uh, so, for instance, in CPNI, we have an effort with uh, Energy-Informed Operations where where we you know have created a dashboard which allows someone like, for example, uh, an operations NCO at a command post where you've got a hand bunch of generators that are maintaining the the power grid there. And what's the status of the fuel on all those? And what's what's the current state of the power grid? What's the maintenance status of all those? And today, that's done manually. So today, somebody has to go around and stick, pull out the, open the gas cap and check the level and come back and, you know, if we wanted to keep track of how much fuel we were using, that's all done manually. Uh, so, so the answer is, is we need sensors, which we have many, many sensors, and we, we have more and more um, the ability to take advantage of sensors that are out there that haven't been connected. So an example is we've got you know, gunner sites that, that historically have been analog devices. They collect a huge amount of information that doesn't ever leave, for instance, if I'm talking about a Bradley fighting vehicle, that, that information never leaves the vehicle. But if you, you might be able to do some onboard processing and so, so and, I, and I say that to avoid sending you know, a bunch of video data over a limited network, but you might be able to do some onboard processing that turns that into information uh, data points that could be added to this, this situational awareness map that helps us understand things about the terrain, things about the enemy that, that has been observed, and, and those kind of things. And, and we want to automate that process. So we want the, the, those data points, to be built in, basically integrated into the, the database picture of the battlefield in an automated way. We don't want that to be done manually. Uh, and That's not to say there won't be things that have to be done manually, but but really that's that's what we're driving at.
2: And then finally, can, can you just give us some kind of sense of, of where you think you are in the development of this whole vision? I mean, do you have any idea when you might start deploying some of this capability even in a limited or prototype way?
1: Um, so I, I want to say that there's there's a big effort going on right now called uh, it's basically a Command Post 2025, and the chief of staff of the Army is really interested in, in improving our basically maintaining our overmatch and and uh, and looking at ways to reduce force structure, reduce the cost, of the way we're doing things, and and the time frame they're looking at is 2025, and we're we're really targeting a lot of uh, a lot of kind of are really the next. Big leap stuff in that, that time frame. All right,
0: thanks, Colonel. And Sanders, did you have a follow up?
3: Yes, uh, thank you. Um, Colonel, on the um, command post, um, you mentioned the command post 2025 and some of these initiatives. Um, how does mobility uh, play into that? Because my understanding is that command posts uh, have to be mobile, that you don't really the army does, does not want to plan for staying in, you know, in fixed facilities, or you know, they want to have, you know, a vehicle-based command post, and that creates, you know, a whole lot of challenges and, and whatnot. So, now you, going back to the, you know, communications. I mean, I know you, you know, you, you need reliable communications to be able to have mobile command posts. So. What is sort of the discussions that you're having on that, on the, in that area, and where do you see, how do you see technology uh, actually progressing to the point that you can meet these mobile command post requirements?
1: So, so you have to make sure that I understood the question. That sounded like there was there was two parts. One was uh, related to ability for the command post to be mobile, and the and the other one was uh, related to the comms.
3: Yes. So
1: um, I guess I, I would just have to say that, uh, you know, the mobile, like you mentioned, it's, it's critical. So there's, there's and, and of course, it's different at different echelons, so that how much mobility is required, uh, you know, is not the same at for a core asset as it is for, say, a battalion asset. Um, uh, and, and the communications is a big, big part of that. So when we talk about mobility, I mean, we're, so in, in my organization, we're focusing a lot on, on uh, kind of streamlining the amount of uh, so there's a huge amount of computation that's there now in the command post so even at battalion and we're, we're trying to streamline uh, what has kind of grown quite a bit in the, uh, the stability support environment that we've been in and we're trying to uh, try to build basically bring back uh, the more agile command posts that 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 were we are more familiar with prior to the you know the actions in Afghanistan and Iraq, and part of that is kind of looking at what's in the command post today, and choosing what's what really is needs to be in this command post, and then considering how do we power it, and uh, and what is the what does the hardware look like to uh, run it? There's there's some efforts you know that are going on right now at the PN the PM for this kind of stuff. Um, but the, earlier I mentioned, you know, when we were working with Tradoc on the uh, requirements, future requirements for command posts. This whole, this mobile command post, is is part of that uh, discussion. And we have uh, we have a uh, program at CPNI that's focused on mission command on the move, and you know, how do you how do you what does that exactly mean? So there's different some there's some things you can't do while you're moving just by the very nature of the, the way vehicles move. So you kind of imagine. Um, sitting, in a, sitting or standing, you know, at a, at a table in a command post and talking over, you know, it might be a digital map or whatever it is, the, the discussion that you can have there is not the same as the one that you had, could have in the back of a track vehicle that's moving down the road uh, where you're literally bouncing. You know, it's, it's, just, it's not like riding in a Cadillac when you're off-road and, and, and in that kind of environment. So, so really, what is, it, what is it that can be done literally on the move and then, what things can we do to improve the the, the speed, setup and teardown speed? So, you know, one example is uh, a lot of the systems that are out there today have to be completely shut down before it's just before they can be moved um, because the hard drives aren't able to aren't really able to handle the movement without risking losing data and that kind of thing. So, if we could avoid that, we would be taking a big step. It takes take some time to, to shut down. Uh, those digital systems and bring them back up. Um, and, and I guess in terms of the comms, I mean it's kind of just uh, along the lines of the discussion that we had earlier, um, it's it's a critical piece. and we have to understand, you know what are the impacts of of what are the impacts in those moments where the comms are not available? and how does the how does the architecture and infrastructure inside the command post support the decision making that needs to be made despite that? So so one example, and again, we you have to you have to just uh, kind of uh, accept the notion that we might be operating in a, in disconnected in some at some time at some you know point in the battle. So if I if I was the commander down at this tactical you know forward element, um, is there some caching I should have done? So if I did have connection, if I did have access to the cloud, and if there was some information that I might need later. Um, if, but if I re, if I didn't download it right now, I didn't and I didn't know that the connection wasn't available later. Then maybe that was a mistake. So there's some question about caching, and we want to automate that too. So similar to the way caching is done in computers, you know, I want to I want to spend some time predicting what it is you're going to ask for, and of course, you know, subject to network limitations, if there's network bandwidth available, it might be it might be useful for me to to pre. Uh, pre cache some information that, that I'm very, very likely to need and very, very difficult to operate without if, if I asked for it later and didn't have that connection. So hopefully that at least takes a step towards answering your question.
3: Yes, thank you. And to your point earlier about, you know, the, the, the Army leadership wants systems that are lower cost, uh, lower life cycle costs and things like that, um, I understand one of the concerns is that, uh, a lot of the systems require a lot of uh, IT support, a lot of tech support. So, um, do you think that there's enough effort being put into systems that are maybe more user-friendly, less, uh, lower maintenance? That uh, that you're going to be able to reduce the cost because it seems like that would be, you know, the labor and the maintenance would be the cost drivers most, most of the times. Um, is, is that is that something that's being talked about and? and yeah. So, so you
1: ask if there's enough effort being done.
3: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: so, I, I want to say within at least within the S and T community, it's something because because we're we're looking at what's out there now, which is you know some of the stuff, especially when we talk about command posts, there's a lot of dependency on field service reps, and 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 that's a huge cost. And there's there's uh, we recognize that as a significant uh, obstacle to. Um, uh, mobile mission command on the move so, so if we want to be able to be mobile you know and think when I mentioned earlier about it takes time to, to, to shut down the, the systems and bring them back up you know often it's, uh, a field service rep is required to even to do that and uh, we you know or might be required to do that um, so we, we want to uh, we want to eliminate we want to eliminate those those uh, you know we, we don't want technicians to need to be in the field we want the users. We want interaction to be intuitive. We want setup to be intuitive. I mean, this has come up, uh, and I can't—I don't, I don't know who to quote, but it's come up several times. Where you know, effectively, I think General Hughes, at P.O. of C3T, has said this kind of thing. You know, that that th- there should be one button. There should be an on-off button for the system, and as opposed to as opposed to uh, you know having to say you know start multiple systems in a certain order and those kind of things. All of that those that should be automated, and, and that's definitely a, a very very. Uh, important one of the, one of the critical attributes that we're looking for in, 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 at least within this organization. So CERDEC and CPNI, uh, it's well recognized as an issue, and it's and it's something that we're very interested. In. So so whether there's enough being done, I and mean, you might find places where uh, you know we might be sustaining we might be sustaining systems that do require a lot of FSRs, but it's it's you know we either don't have the we're not able to. To fund a replacement for those, or there's not a replacement available. So you know, I I don't want to say we're doing enough necessarily. Uh, I want to say that there's there's a lot that can be done, and it's something that we're thinking about more and more.
3: Mm-hmm. Great, thank you. That helps a lot. Thank you,
0: uh, sir. Did you have any more time for more questions?
1: Yeah. So I was uh, I was planning to be here until noon.
0: Okay, Roger that. Uh, so Jared, did you have another question?
1: Yeah, just a couple quick ones. I, I,
2: I think you've basically answered this, but I just want to make sure I understand. When, when you're presenting the simulations to the end user, that you, you you imagine that happening in basically a dismounted environment, right? He doesn't need to be tied to a, a vehicle, for example. Right. Yeah. I mean,
1: I, I want. I, I would like for. To me, it's important for that dismount to be able to take advantage of those those product. So, so, and then the big question might be, what do those products look like? And it, it might be that some computation. So we talked about backhaul. Uh, you know, it might be that a lot of computation is done in a vehicle and not in that handheld device, and that's perfectly, you know, feasible and reasonable. And maybe, maybe, again, when I lose connectivity with that vehicle, then what's left? What what, is, what actions or what tools do I have still, despite having lost that connectivity? Okay.
2: And then just kind of to follow up on Sandra's last question, I mean, it, it seems like you can cut out a lot of FSRs and maintenance if you go as much as possible toward the kind of devices that people use in their everyday lives, like COTS, Android, iPhone-type smartphones. Can, can, can you do what you think you need to do with basically off-the-shelf hardware?
1: Um, yeah, So so it's very, very possible that the answer to that is yes. You know, in almost in almost every case, when we do take something off the shelf, there's some, you know, there may be some special needs and you know, there, some level, some modifications. So, so, as an example, certainly at the software level. So, I think the the handheld device that's being used right now, the Net Warrior, you know, has some uh, certainly plenty of software modifications. Uh, and and I don't want to say there's no hardware modifications, but it's you know, you know, there's some radios in there that we don't want to use, for example. Um, but, but in general, yes. And also, and you're right. It does tie back to the whole question about FSRs. You know, there's this notion that uh, because the cost of the cost of buying uh, this, you know, if you look at what that handheld device, so a smartphone, is a great example. If you look at that device, if we were within the government to try to develop that thing, so say it didn't exist in the civilian market, the cost per individual unit would be dramatically higher, um, and so you would. Want to maintain? You would want to sustain it over time, um, but because that's not the case, the the cost of each individual unit becomes much less because we're buying something that's produced, you know, at such a massive level, and it's also updated so frequently that you probably don't want to sustain it. You you more than likely want to replace it with the the next, uh, as opposed to buying parts, you know, for your for your handheld smartphone. You you more than likely would give it a uh, an expected life a life expectancy that's commensurate with uh, the life expectancy for these devices in the in uh, the civilian market, and and you would maintain them that way, and it, and it would be substantially that is substantially cheaper than trying to do this, you know, without without any costs, you know. So there's a huge advantage to the cost. So I think that, you know, the the uh, explosion in, in computational power isn't because of necessarily because of military investment. It's because you know the commercial market is. You know, there's, there's interest in, in this kind of computing power and a large scale in the public, and, and you know, we're able to take advantage of that. So I think that, that we do want to do that, and it does help us reduce the, the uh, logistics.
2: Okay. Thanks a lot.
0: And Sandra, did, Sandra, did you have a follow-up?
3: Yeah. Yeah, I'll, I have one more. Uh Colonel, I was wondering, yeah, and, and I'm not clear. You may have taught, you may have discussed this before, but I'm not clear on these mission command applications. Um, what, what is uh, what is the state of those systems today? What what mission command applications are available today, and which are the ones that you wish to have in the future?
1: So I guess that maybe the. The simplest way to answer that in terms of what's available is, is and I, I kind of mentioned this earlier, but you know, we have in the Army uh, you know, a set of warfighting functions that support the commander. So there's, there's systems that support artillery fires, there's systems that support the air defense activity, there's systems that support intelligence, systems that support the engineers and those kinds of things. So, so that kind of is what's out there. And what, what we're where we're going, you know, really what we want to have, is a system that supports the leadership. So it's kind of like there, so, so you know, one there is one for maneuver, which which in my career I kind of viewed as the as the uh, uh, commander's tool because it's focused on maneuver. But it's really, you know, it, it's really a complex picture that the commander needs, and, and it's an integrated picture that the commander needs. And in, in, it's something that's difficult to do today. So, so I think you know, in terms of what tools we do need, it's it's the one for the leader, and and uh, and really I, I prefer to say applications for the commander as opposed to tools. But but really, it's the commander's app that gives that integrated picture, and that's something that that I think is needed.
3: Mm-hmm. And the challenges in getting there would be what challenges?
1: Well, I mean, some of it is is again that that you've got these. Um, systems that have been de- developed, and this is kind of structural with the acquisition, uh, the way we do acquisition. You know, we have, a pr- we have an office that builds a device that supports the artillery, and we, we, end-, we end up with an office that d- builds a device that supports uh, one of the other work-fighting functions. And, and so, historically, we feel like that office would field hardware and software that performs that function. Um, but because, for example, if we instead, which is the direction we're going, if instead we had, uh, you know, a common hardware across all those, then, then that would be the first step. So in terms of being able to integrate that picture. But then the, another difficulty is the database. So the way the data is managed by each of those systems, uh, you know, historically, you know, because we, we say didn't, didn't have uh, the ability to integrate across all of them into a single picture, uh, the data may or may not be formatted the same way, so it requires translation from one warfighting area to the other, um, and then consolidating all that and, and translating data between databases becomes, I'd say, the main area of difficulty. So, so part of that, part of the answer is restructuring, basically building archi- data architecture and a uh, computing architecture that's that's uh, more coherent across all those functions, which which enables you to build a uh, coherent. Uh, picture for the commander, you know, from common data, and also that that picture is available to everyone else as well that has access to that data. And so we, we get a, uh, you know, we get more integration across efforts, and you get better understanding across all the staff, and, and of course the commander is able to un- get better visualization, better situation understanding by seeing a configurable picture that the that, that commander is able to choose.
3: Mm-hmm. Okay, great, thank you.
0: And, Jared, any follow-up?
3: I'm
1: good. Thanks, William.
0: Roger that. Sandra, just check with you again. Uh,
3: I think I've, I've got all the questions in, so thank you very much.
0: Roger that. Thank you. And, uh, sir, thank you very much for your time. And thank you, everybody, for your questions. Uh, sir, with that, did you have any closing statement you would like to make?
1: Um, I guess the only thing I would say is uh, you know, I appreciate the opportunity to, to sit here and, and uh, talk about this, uh, some of the things that were going on. Um, You know, I just, I I have a personal interest in, in, you know, where we're going with the kind of the the core topic of what we were, uh, you know, getting at today, which is, you know, where are we going with this, with the, uh, you know, the ability to support decision making. Um, So, you know, we're we're interested, I mean, you know, you asked, somebody asked earlier about the uh, use of commercial technology, I mean, I think that there's, uh, you know, we're looking for we, we want to throw a wide net for way, how, where these solutions come from. You know, we're not we're not trying to just dig in our own lockers and find out how to solve this problem. So I you know I see it as a broad problem with the, the there's a there's a whole lot of facets that have to be addressed and and some of them are really hard. And again, what I what I laid out is, is is really a vision. You know, so we talked about the 2025 time frame and prototyping. I mean, there's there's uh, you know if you were to basically be able to do what i described in a in a perfect way you know in other words uh, really really good at predicting the enemy at different tactical echelons and and uh, that kind of thing that's that's going to take some time so so you're there's some things we'll be able to do in the near term and like i said the first you know you might start seeing things in the in the 2025 time frame but uh, there will be a lot of work to do beyond that so you know we uh, are very interested in understanding the problem and and you know working with the defense community, and academia to help understand help understand and, and address you know the things that we can address with the that computational power we expect to be able to get out there on the front line.
0: Thank you so much again, sir, and again thank you to the bloggers who joined us today. Uh, later this afternoon, I will have the audio from this uh, bloggers roundtable up on DoD Live and a blog on it. Uh, If you have any other questions, you could forward them to me if if you think of anything after this that you need answered by uh, Lieutenant Colonel Baker. Uh, Until then, that concludes today's call. Uh, If you feel free to to disconnect at this time.